every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, fourth Saturday of the month. It is time for our Urban Farm Testic broadcast. We've got Urban Farm Greg Peterson joining us. And how you feeling? Oh, you know, yeah. I'm feeling great. Thanksgiving was quiet around here at the Urban Farm, and we did some work in the yard and just hung out with the chickens. The first broadcast after Thanksgiving is always one of those where it's, you know, everyone still might be a little bit on the trip to Fane and it's a little bit slower. <laughs> might have a, a few out of town listeners that uh, staying at family's house listening to the broadcast for the first time. And what are we going to educate our listeners to this morning? Oh my gosh. So let's talk today about backyard food, creating a backyard food forest. What did that mean? What might it look like? How might you think about going about it? Because I'm a big, big fan of it. Don't ever plant anything you can't eat, man. And it right now, make sense to me. there's a lot of people thinking, why are you even talking about food? <laughs> well, if you grow your own food and it comes out of your backyard, a lot of times you don't feel like that after eating. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, there you go. So tell me about food forests. Don't eat, don't plant anything you wouldn't grow or eat. Or eat. Well, and, you know, I expand past that a little bit. And the expansion past that is uh, planting flowers for pollinators uh, and things and green ground covers that maybe fix nitrogen that can be tilled in later. So there's other things that we do. But basically what we're doing when we're designing a backyard food forest is we look to nature to see how nature would do something like this and mimic that. So just like it happens in a forest, you know, the leaves drop in the fall and uh, birds come along and poop and, you know, you get animals doing what they're doing and trees fall over. And before long, you know, whether that before long is months or years or decades, what's happening underneath is you get this really healthy soil that's building up. And the basis for any good garden and any good food forest is the soil underneath it. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of segments. So there's two pieces. Make sure you build healthy soil and let nature do it. And, um, you know, really pay attention to what you're planting so that you're only planting things that nurture the landscape. So edibles and flowers and those kinds of things. Now let's... Take, for example, an existing yard, because that's what most of our homeowners have. They're already in a home and they're listening. And, you know, there there's a lot of building going on, but that's still a small percent of, of the population out there. I've already got a yard just to give everybody a perspective, because when, as you hear Greg throughout this broadcast and we're talking about his farm and what's there, you think, man, this guy must live on, you know, <laughs> uh, on a square land, a square of land or something. But you're on a third of an acre. Yep, I have t just a little over 12,000 square feet. To give you a perspective on that, that's 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. Uh, I've lived here for 31 years. I started looking at and studying permaculture 29 years ago, and I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. So in permaculture, what we do is we take a look at how nature works, and then we mimic it in our space because... Nature knows how to do it better than we do. 
And that's actually your first talking point is just observing. Don't don't get in a rush, which is hard, because yeah. when we do something, we want to you know, reap the benefits right away. Well, this is something that takes time to develop. So we're going to start by observing. Usually what I tell people to do is spend a year, four seasons, observing your space. When the rain comes, when it, where it comes on your property, where's the sun at, uh, you know, all of the things that happen throughout the year, pay attention to them. Now, I'm not saying don't do anything. What I'm saying is just start paying attention to your space and that'll give you a clue on where to plant your water at that's coming off of your roof, where to build a garden at simply by observing. And that observation, there's one key piece that we want to do in that is look to see how nature and the things that are of nature in your yard are interacting with your house. And here's a perfect example. About 15 years ago, uh, the people sold their house across the street and new neighbors moved in. And, you know, you get a new house, you want to come in and clean up and do the work. Uh, and the house across the street from me faces west. So that means the front of the house gets this brutal Western afternoon sun in the summertime. And within 10 days, the new owners were out there with chainsaws. Well, the new owners weren't, they hired some people with chainsaws to take out these beautiful 80 year old grapefruit trees that were, you know, 30 feet tall that were shading the front of their house. What they didn't get was that, and we call this a class one error in permaculture, what they didn't get was that by taking those trees out, they just took away all their shade. And that deeply impacted their electric bill. So really when I say observe for a year, I'm, what I'm wanting you to do is to make sure that you're not making any class one errors. Like I said, that's what we call them in permaculture, major errors like that. You know, if you want to put in a garden the first year, get your garden in. Uh, but make sure that you know how nature is interacting with your house before you make any major changes. And if you are planting on a garden and you're going to do spring and fall gardening in the mm -hmm. same location, it's important to know the sun location will be different. So pay attention to those trees. Pay attention to your home and, and structures around and where that sun's going to fall. Because there's about a 13% variance from the summer solstice to the winter solstice on where that the sun physically is in the sky. Exactly. And this is what I tell people. Set your smartphone. Everybody has a smartphone these days. Set your smartphone for December 21st, March 21st, June 21st, and September 21st at noon to go out and see where the sun is at in the sky. And so you have one coming up in three weeks. You know, it'll be December 21st in three weeks. Go out and see where the sun is at. And you're gonna notice that it's in the Southern sky, really low on the horizon. And when you say 13%, 13% may not seem like a lot, but when you're out there on June 21st and the sun is pretty much directly overhead, it's a huge difference and that will inform you on a lot of things, on where to plant your fruit trees, on where to plant your garden, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, and the shadow cast is, is the key there. So mm -hmm. go to the same spot every single time and, you know, maybe bring someone else with you or a way to mark your shadow. 
stand in the same spot and you'll see the big difference on, on where the shadow cast is. And exactly. you can then calculate that to larger trees around or, or other buildings and get an idea of, wow, this is, this is pretty significant because a lot of vegetables uh, and, and, you know, things in the garden depend on certain amount of daylight hours. But right. If you plant them where they don't get the shade, they never, you know, were, they, they never develop to the maturity that they have the potential to. Exactly. Placing your garden in the wrong place in your yard could spell disaster or success. And that's one of the things you have to decipher. And we're going to talk about that a little more as well. And what we're really talking about is the sunlight at this point and solar aspect. And solar aspect is where the sun's coming from. And the easiest way to decipher this decipher a solar aspect for your yard or for a place in your yard is go stand up against a wall. If you pick a wall in your backyard and go stand up against it and just and figure out what direction you're looking. So a Western exposure or a Western solar aspect gets sun from noon until sundown. And if my back was against the wall, I would be looking west. That is a Western exposure. That is your hottest place in your yard. And then if you add gravel, most people have gravel in their yard. If you add gravel or block walls, that makes it even hotter. We'll talk about mitigating that in a little while. An Eastern exposure gets sun from sunup until noon. So if my back is against the wall, I'm looking east that's actually the best place to put your garden. If you have an Eastern exposure, again, your back's against the wall and you're looking East, it gets sun from sun up until noon. That is the, the most effective place to grow a garden. Southern aspect is, uh, you know, my back is against the wall and I'm looking South. That gets sun all day. That's a great place to garden. You're just gonna have to figure out most likely how to shade your garden in the afternoon parts of it in the afternoon. And then a northern exposure is on a north side of a structure, north side of a wall. And that is the hardest place next to the western exposure. So the western exposure gets too much sun. A northern exposure doesn't get nearly enough. So you have to, you know, you kind of have to figure out the directions. And what we're looking at here are called microclimates. Microclimates are spaces in your yard that are warmer or cooler. Hey, Romy, have you ever been out hiking and you kind of go down into a ravine? Oh, and it yes. Gets, <laughs> and it gets 10 degrees cooler, right? Those are different microclimates. And that's what you're looking for in your yard is um, finding the cooler spaces and the warmer spaces. Because when it comes to fruit trees, that's one of the things I know the most. When it comes to fruit trees, you know, like a fig and a citrus is going to go do well in a warmer microclimate. A peach and an apple is going to do better in a cooler microclimate. So figuring out throughout the year where are the cooler spaces and where are the warmer spaces, um, that's really your biggest challenge in your yard. We're talking with Farmer Greg of the urbanfarm.org here at Rosie on the House. We can do a lot of things, but we can't stop the clock. So we'll be right back to pick up this conversation on creating your own 
food forest right here in Arizona. And welcome back to this post-Thanksgiving broadcast. We've got Farmer Greg in the middle of a conversation about starting our own food forest. And Greg's vision has always been to help Arizona's metropolitan areas become their own uh, sustainable food forest in the backyard. A lot of our food is imports, trucks, and trains. And we're out here in the middle of a very dry desert, very dry climate. You know, what happens if that supply chain breaks down? Well, we've got to be able to feed ourselves. And that's always been your vision. And part of what we do here Saturday's broadcast is help educate people how to grow their own. Yeah. Way back in 1991, while that seems like three lifetimes ago, I did a course uh, and they had me create my vision for my life. And, you know, in, in the eighth grade in 1974, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. So I've known for a very long time that there's something up here that needs to be addressed. So back to 1991, I created myself to be the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Now, am I going to do it? Well, who knows, <laughs> but it gets me up every morning. And as a subset of that, what I do is I look to see how we can create Phoenix into a food secure place. And what that means to me is that we're growing all and I know that's a big word in this sentence, all of our own food here in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And I believe it's possible because upwards of 80% of what you buy in the grocery store will grow here in Phoenix. And then with, with aquaponics and with indoor, um, you know, and outdoor and, and greenhouses, yep. we can create a lot of additional microclimates that will grow those things that otherwise wouldn't grow in, in our and our climate. So it's yeah. it's part of what we do here at the broadcast and hope hope it encourages you to get started or investigating and at least, you know, start small. That's a big thing. And, and I, I know I'm jumping ahead in one of your notes. It's so easy to get started and you, you get the more, 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 more. Oh, I had this. Yep. Oh, I had that. And you're shopping at the nursery and, you know, one plant turns into 50 plants. It, it's, it, it's very easy to get uh, real excited and going hard and then you you way outpace yourself and you burn yourself out. Yeah, you know I have I have that conversation with people all the time. Start small, pick one or two projects, be successful with those projects, and you know, and then move on from there rather than trying to tackle the whole thing at the same time. And Greg, what's the easiest thing you can start with to grow? <laughs> You know me so well. The easiest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy, and you can grow these on a sunny windowsill, are herbs. Basil, cilantro, um, parsley, uh, oregano. These can all be grown on a sunny windowsill if that's all you have. And then that's less refrigerator space you have to worry about, and it's always fresh. You don't have to worry about it going bad. Right. Yeah, we've been eating... Um, for the past six months, we've been we have a few tomato plants. They they struggle in the in the summertime here, uh, but we have an endless supply of basil here at the urban farm. You know, we're with the cold weather now; it's kind of starting to die back. But anytime I wanted a tomato mozzarella salad, I just went out to the yard and picked handfuls, fistfuls of basil. Um, so. And at the urban farm, this isn't all in the backyard or all in the front yard. I mean, everything outside, well, and inside the home, as you mentioned, growing <clears throat> growing herbs. But from your front yard to your backyard, it's all designed to work together. It is. It is. Um, and interestingly enough, we grow most of our vegetables in the front yard. 
Um, you know, starting at the front curb, I have a hedgerow of citrus trees. Did you know in the city, you can't put a fence higher than three feet in front of your house in most, in most municipalities, but you can grow a hedgerow of plants that will give you a nice fence. So I have a nice privacy fence. So it's the street, my berm, and a row of 14 citrus trees. And that's that that separates me from the street. So it gives me privacy. But and right then the next thing is a is a 10 foot wide garden bed that we grow all kinds of things in every year. And that, that bed's been activated for about 25 years now. And when you're talking about this row of citrus trees, you keep them trimmed more like shrubs, though. These aren't just to give everyone a perspective. We're not talking, you had mentioned the first broadcast, the homeowner that cut down these huge, gigantic, 80-year-old grapefruit trees. These aren't, these these are managed and kept. uh, Like a bush. Like a bush. Yeah, like a bush. Absolutely. In fact, we really encourage in in all of our education around fruit trees that we keep trees small and bush-like, peaches, apricots, apples, plums, uh, citrus, mulberries, keep them all smaller and manageable because then they're easier to harvest. And you know, a peach at the top of a 25 foot tall peach tree is bird food here in the valley. You're not gonna get it before that bird does, that is the truth. (laughs) Exactly. So one, you know, one management technique to, uh, you know, to, grow a lot of fruit in our yards and I have about 70 fruit trees here on my 12,000 square feet. Yes, I said 70 trees, 70 fruit trees. Um, One way we manage that is in hedgerows and keeping them small. And do you ever get into a a situation where you're planting the trees too close and you've got the, the roots competing underground or is that just increase the responsibility to make sure you've got plenty of healthy soil? Yeah, more number two. Um, I have experimented and, and people have planted uh, fruit trees 18 inches apart. Uh, and that, then at Dave Wilson Nursery, they call that planting multiple trees in one hole. And really what you do is you do a triangle. You dig a hole that's a triangle. And the trees are 18 inches apart, one on each corner. Okay, well, hang, hang on. This is really interesting. And I think we're going to need a little bit more time to articulate okay. it. we got to hit bottom of the hour news break. More at Rosie on the House here right after this. Continuing our conversation here at the Urban Farm. Hope you all had a wonderful, blessed Thanksgiving. And we are right in the middle of a conversation on creating a backyard food forest with Urban Farm, Greg Peterson. And Farmer Greg, you were, I kind of deterred you off of your talking points, but I want you to go ahead and finish that. We were talking about uh, planting in a triangle and, you know, (laughs) to create, you know, (laughs) can you plant too close uh you sounded like you're i'm very interested continue please (laughs) all right this is you know usually when we plant trees close together it's because you don't have a whole lot of space for people that have a lot of space if you're going to plant in a hedgerow so you want a a row like uh, like oleanders that looks like oleanders i have here on the property i have uh, citrus apples and mulberries that grow in rows so if you're going to grow in rows five feet from trunk to trunk 
is a very good distance. If you have a lot of space in your yard and you don't want to grow in rows, 10 feet apart on the fruit trees is a really good distance apart on them. But the what I was talking about before the break was Dave Wilson uh, Nursery. They're, uh, they're a grower in Northern California and talk a lot about this whole notion of backyard orchard culture. They talk about planting multiple trees in one hole. And what that looks like is you dig a triangle hole rather than a, a round hole. In fact, um, we've even transitioned to grow to uh, digging square holes, but you dig a triangle hole and put the trees in trunk to trunk, 18 inches apart. And your original question was, do the roots have a problem? And they don't, they just kind of grow through the space. But then what happens with that triangle is you have in a triangle, you have three trees, 18 inches apart. And over time, what they do is they grow out as bushes and they look like one tree. They look like one plant, but they have three different varieties of peaches. And let's talk about peaches, three different varieties of peaches that ripen at different times. We call this successive ripening where, you know, you plant a desert gold peach and it ripens in mid-May, a Suaze swirl peach that ripens the second week of June and a mid-pride peach that ripens the last week of June. So basically what you're getting is you're getting six or eight weeks of peaches off of these three trees rather than one tree in the same space that gives you all your peaches at once. And I do love our peach trees and uh, always enjoy canning them and you have them around, but that is the one thing that keeps coming back to citrus is such like a miracle fruit because it'll stay ripe on the tree for months. Peaches, yes. you've got a two week time frame to get those harvested and then that's it. Yep. So I like yeah. that successive ripening so you can continue to work around the tree as the time goes. And if you know that and, and you're planning that, you know, that gives you a lot more success and, you know, building up that, you know, your canned peaches instead of having to kill yourself in a two week time frame because you planted three fruit trees of the exact same variety that are all yes. ripe now. Well, exactly. if you just spaced it out a little bit with different varieties that ripen at a different time, there's a perfect solution to that yeah well you know we can run into successive ripening with citrus because there are citrus that will actually be ripened and available to pick off of the tree eight ten months a year uh you know my i i just harvested my first uh, navel orange on thanksgiving day that's always a happy day for me because i eat navel oranges like mad and the navel oranges will stay on the trees for 60 days and really, they're still good when I'm harvesting them after 60 days, uh, just because I've eaten them all, but they're still good on the tree. And then what com comes immediately after them are Trovita oranges, which are navel-like oranges, which are usually ripe in you know, late January, February, and March, and even into early April. Uh, and then there's the Arizona sweet. So if you want, you know, if you want oranges for six months a year, plant a Caracara navel, a Trovita orange, and a Arizona sweet, and you've got six months worth of citrus right there. 
And you can get all this information if you were trying to grab a pen and write that down and remember it all at rosieonthehouse.com slash radio. Click on today's date and you can get the podcast or listen individually to the segments. Gary does both uh, a great job of having uh, an audio clip from the individual segments with the keywords. So if you were just looking for something specific or you can click on the link and get the entire hour in a podcast. So we've got... I've got to get us back on track here because we, <laughs> as always, we go down multiple different bunny trails because it's a fun topic. Um, yeah, big- so here, let me, let me jump in because I, I have a, a point that we need to make here. When you're designing your food forest, uh, and forests aren't one layer, you know, they're not one kind of tree or one height of tree. So when you're designing your food forest, one of the first things I want you to start looking at is what kind of shade can you plant that over time will um, help shade your yard, especially here in the, you know, in the heat in the summertime. And uh, I'm a big fan of native mesquites because the beans are edible, native Palo Verdes and native ironwood trees, all of which can grow tall, provide a mottled shade. They're not a dense shade. So that's, really one of the first things you want to be doing when you start designing your uh, your edible landscape is thinking how I can get some trees planted that over the course of the next five to 15 years will provide shade in my yard, shade on my house. And one of the things I suggest people do all the time is go to Google, go to a search engine, type in what does a mature native mesquite look like? And it'll give you pictures of what, you know, what a mesquite tree looks like and what you could expect if you, you know, you can grow them out as bushes or you can grow them out as single tree trunks. So one of your tools in helping you design your space is the search engine pictures on Instagram and on, you know, on Google and all those to to see what your ultimate outcome is going to be. And you could also take a hike. That's always a a good suggestion, too. (laughs) Right. And there might be a lot of us that might need the extra exercise right now. (laughs) You can Exactly. Well, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, Arizona State Parks website, you could find it a lot of places. Maricopa County Parks and Rec, Pinal County Parks and Rec, Desert Botanical Gardens, you know, and and then just take pictures. The, The one hard thing about going out and seeing it is if you're new to Arizona or you don't know what plants you're looking at, you take the pictures. Well, then you got to find somebody to tell you, what is this I'm well, looking at? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but seeing well, it, it out in its in nature really helps in, in the whole time. design process. Big time. Well, and here's the other thing. And, it, you know, sometimes my head's a little dense and it took me a good 15 years to, to get the aha on this one. And that is walk around your neighborhood. See what's working in your neighborhood already and start to replicate that. Uh Uh-huh. That is a good idea. Right? You know, because, you know, where you're out in, uh, you know, way out in the West Valley is a different microclimate, a different space than where I'm at here at 16th Street in Bethany Home. And you're on an irrigated lot. We're not. That has a lot of its own microclimates. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So definitely go walking in your neighborhood and see what's actually working. You know, we have in our neighborhood, we have some wild jujubes 
You know, you know what a jujube is? I, just from you. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Besides the candy that you buy at the grocery store, a jujube is a is a tree that grows a fruit that's that's kind of in the realm of a date. They call them Asian dates, and they're they're spongy and sweet and chewy and so, you know, in my neighborhood, we have them growing wild. Interesting. And yeah. So just go out in your neighborhood and pay attention to what's going on there. That will help you a lot in the designing of, you know, a, a, an edible landscape for your yard. And then we've got to get to soil. One of the things that you often address is the lack of nutrients in our native soil. It's just mm -hmm. basically dirt. We've got a lot of dirt. So yeah. the successfulness of your fruit forest all comes back to what you can do with the soil. And it's not something that just happens overnight. Right. Well, and we can, we've got some jump starts for you that you could, uh, you know, that within a week or two, you could get some of that going on. One of the things that I do, I do garden consults with people on the phone and when I'm looking at somebody's yard and it's just dirt, I had one of these yesterday or the day before. Um, one of the things that I suggest is that you put down eight to 12 inches of woody mulch. Just chipped up, they sell it in bags. We have it at our nursery. If you're gonna, you know, if you've got a large space, there's an organization out there called Chip Drop that will drop a 20 to 30 cubic yard load in your driveway. Um, Arizona Worm Farm, they'll deliver woody, woody mulch, they sell it uh, to you. And what that woody mulch does, is that what you're wanting to know? Well, no, I was just gonna mention for anyone listening a couple weeks ago when we had our arborist, John Eisenhower, and he just mentioned on trip, chip drop, just know you, the one thing about that is you can't control what you get. The arborists yep. are out there, they chip up the trees that they're pruning, trimming, cutting down, and then they yeah. come and drop it at your home. So if you don't care what you get, if you don't care about the consistency, because a lot of times they're, they're not worried about the consistency, uh, right. you know, when they're doing this, they're getting their job done. And instead yeah. of then taking that chipped to the landfill, landfill, they can drop it at your home. So if you don't care about what type of wood chips, which it really doesn't matter in this case, unless you're trying to do something decorative, but for growing, it doesn't matter. And consistency right. doesn't matter. So both of those right. applications don't matter. But if you're also doing it for aesthetic looks in the front yard, that might be the time that you're then calling the worm farm or, you know, a, a professional uh, landscape supply company, and you're actually selecting your consistency, exactly. your color, your type. Yeah, exactly. And um, th so the woody mulch, basically what happens at the interface between the woody mulch and the dirt is very quickly it starts breaking down. The woody mulch acts like a sponge. The, uh, you know, the soil life shows up even worms maybe show up and you know within six months you've got a good couple inch layer of healthy soil at the bottom of that woody mulch and remember in our first segment i talked about the you know the most important thing that you can do is build healthy soil and our dirt here in the desert is highly compacted uh, you, the water can't get in it's lacking organic matter and it's lacking life and the solution to all that 
is to add lots and lots of organic matter. And woody mulch is a great example of that. You've got a couple other things that uh, you you can add as well, but we'll cover those on the other side of this break, our final segment with Farmer Greg here at Rosie on the House right after this. Continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg, we were in the middle of adding life to our soil. Woody mulch chips was like that, but you've got some other words like asthmacrite or, uh, <laughs> you know, some worms and castings. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to do a shout out to uh, Arizona Worm Farm. They're over at uh, 19th Avenue, just south of Southern. They're doing absolutely incredible work over there. Uh, if you want to know about worm composting, they give worm composting classes and uh, you can get nice planting mixes from them. And they're they're an amazing organization doing great work to help build healthy soil in this valley, which is so incredibly important. So healthy soil, let's just review really quick. And I know I've done this many times, but um, until everybody can recite this back to me, <laughs> I'm going to keep talking about it. <laughs> so there's five components to healthy soil. Dirt is one of them. And if that's all you have is desert dirt, good luck growing anything. I love Kari Spencer. She's over at the Microfarm Project and a longtime friend. She said when she first started gardening here 20 years ago, she went in her backyard, she dug some holes, pulled the dirt out of the holes, put them in pots and tried to grow something. <laughs> right? Good luck with that. It's just not going to work. So five components of healthy soil. Dirt is one of them. It's got micronutrients in it. But if there's nothing else in there, the plants can't access that, those micronutrients. So airspace, water, organic matter, dirt, and everything that's alive in the soil. Those are the five components of healthy soil. The good news is if you add organic matter, like we talked about in the last segment, adding lots and lots of woody mulch, if you add organic matter to your space, it fixes most of the problems over time. You know, um, I, I had some friends uh, maybe six, seven years ago, and they had a dirt garden bed in their front yard and they wanted me to plant a garden in it. So, uh, you know, I went over there one day with uh, a truckload of planting mix and we put eight inches of planting mix in their garden, watered it down and planted their seeds. Now notice, I didn't say that we dug. I just put that planting mix, the eight inches of planting mix right on top of their garden bed. There was no Bermuda grass in it. And we planted the seeds. And what we're doing is we were letting the seed roots do the digging for us. And what happens over time in a garden bed like that is every year you add two inches of compost, two inches of planting mix on top. And over time, what happens is, is that the nature does the digging work for you so that you don't have to do it. So... And I also want to distinguish one thing here. There's mulch and there's compost and planting mix. Mulch goes around your fruit trees and your pathways around your gardens. Compost and planting mix goes in your planting hole for your fruit trees and in your gardens. You never want to use mulch in your gardens or in your planting holes for your trees because that mulch requires nitrogen to break it down. So if you're putting that in your garden or tree planting holes, it's swiping the nitrogen from your plants and your plants won't do very well. So when you're looking at buying some planting mix from somebody, 
always grab a handful of it. And if there's more than about five to 8% of material in there that you recognize as sticks or leaves or stuff like that, I call that mulch. And I've had multiple conversations with the city of Phoenix. They have what they call composted mulch there. It should be composting mulch. <laughs> it should be composting it, mulch. It's exactly. still breaking down the, the mulch. <laughs> exactly. So be really cognizant about the soil that you actually put in your garden. Grab a handful of it. Look at it. A, pl- a good planting mix, you shouldn't see more than about 5 or 8% sticks and leaves and that kind of stuff. Everything else should be broken down. And it's one of those things that's not a one-time buy. Every time you plant, like you said, you've got to continue Mm -hmm. to add, continue to add. Eventually, you could have your own food forest that you've got enough leaf drop and you're composting and you've got your own that you don't have to go purchase because you've got enough organic matter to break down Mm -hmm. and compost yourself to add in to your garden. But that takes a couple years to get there. Uh, Exactly. And let's talk about leaf drop. One of the most valuable things, and I've got my neighbors trained. I've got four different neighbors that bring me bags of leaves every year. (laughs) Leaf mold, leaf compost is one of the most valuable things for your garden beds. Put it on top. Put it around the base of your trees. I use it in my composting process. Um, So save those leaves. They are very valuable for you. And you, when we're talking food forest and you gave the analogy of the forest earlier, what is never picked up in the forest? Leaves. You know, that's right. part of what makes the forest successful is that's, that's how critical that leaf is back to the earth. Exactly. It's a new, it, it provides nutrient to the tree. And as go the roots, so go the shoots. And you've got these great trees feeding themselves. That's why, exactly. that's why it, you don't need to fertilize in the wild. It, it, we take the fertilizer away, then we go buy fertilizer to add. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I just got to say this. For those people out there that are dethatching their lawns, that is the hardest thing from a nature perspective. That's the hardest thing you can be doing that, to that lawn. You're going through and you're taking out all last year's mulch. And then you're putting seed down. And sometimes they bring in compost, which is mulch, used to be mulch. And then they water it and they try and get the grass growing. I abuse my lawn here. And most people look at my lawn and say, oh my gosh, you have an amazing lawn. The only reason I have a lawn is because the flood irrigation. Um, but don't dethatch your lawn. That is your mulch from last year for this year's upcoming lawn. And don't take the clippings when you mow and put it in your trash can to take out to the street. <laughs> right. right. That's your perfect I, compost starter. Well, Farmer Greg, we are just out of time. Quick, give everyone a website to follow up. Oh, check out urbanfarm.org. That's my main site that I do everything on. And you can get this podcast at rosieonthehouse.com slash radio. 